From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Uh, if uh, We won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future Open Line Monday mailbag, just send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN. That's openline at EWTN. Or uh, you can even text a question to us. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall produces the program, and your call well, there is no call screener because we're not taking your phone calls. How about that? But our host, as he is every Monday, from Mount St. Mary's Seminary, uh, faithful son of the church from the Diocese of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Terrific. Happy Holy Week to you. <clears throat> yes, I'm on my way to the Chrism Mass right after this show. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah, it was tomorrow here in the Diocese of Birmingham for oh, the Chrism okay. Mass. Yeah. Um, so I thought it might be appropriate here at the beginning of the program today, as we enter Holy Week, um, to just give a little bit of a of a dissertation for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, or even for some of maybe our Catholic brothers and sisters who don't have a, a real solid knowledge of exactly what we're talking about. Talk a little bit about, about what Holy Week is, what it means to us as Catholics, and, and about how it culminates with the Sacred Triduum. Okay, well, uh, Holy Week is, for Christians, the holiest week of the year because it, it commemorates uh, Jesus' last week uh, on earth, uh, alive before his death and resurrection. So it begins uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. In the old calendar, uh, in the what was previously called the extraordinary form, uh, Passion Sunday came before Palm Sunday, but since the Vatican Council, they combined both. So Passion and Palm Sunday are all one entity now. And so we have the reading of the Passion, uh, the long narrative of Jesus' uh, death on the cross, and, of course, the blessing of palms. And then we have Monday of Holy Week, Tuesday of Holy Week, Wednesday of Holy Week. And they're just um, days in which a lot of dioceses will have the Mass of the Oils, where the bishop will bless the oil of the sick that's used for the anointing of the sick, the oil of catechumens that's used uh, at the RCIA um, at, and at baptism, and then, of course, the sacred chrism, which is used at baptism, confirmation, and, and holy orders. And because they'll do it on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because in the old church it was always done on Holy Thursday in the morning, and then you had Mass at the Lord's Supper in the evening, with a lot of dioceses being very large territorially, like Birmingham or my diocese, Harrisburg, where like uh, 8,000 square miles, uh, it's easier for the parish priest to get there on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday because then they have to get back to their parishes if they're going to have Mass in the evening. And this is the consecration of all the oils that will be used for the entire upcoming year for the entire diocese, right? That's correct, because after the uh, at the end of the year, uh, not calendar-wise, but in 365 days, every priest has to get rid of the old oils. Um, they're usually kept in a little uh, container, um, called an oil stock, and then uh, there's a cotton ball in there that's filled with the oil, and at the end of the year they take it out, burn it, and then replenish it with the oil that the bishop blesses 
and it's a very lovely ancient liturgy. Again, all the priests of the diocese uh, gather. They renew their promises of, of obedience and, and celibacy and uh, their faithfulness to the church. And there's three different oils that are blessed. They're all olive oil, uh, the oil of the sick, the oil of catechumens. The sacred chrism is olive oil, but has something extra added to it it's called balsam. It gives it a very, very strong aroma so that you know that that's exactly what it is. And it is essential for the validity of the sacraments for anointing, uh, or excuse me, for uh, holy orders and for uh, confirmation. You know, and it's interesting that you mentioned the, the chrism oil because, you know, it, it, there's kind of a correlation there. If any go, if anyone goes to Mass today, uh, but the, uh, the Gospel reading at Mass today uh, talks about Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, taking very costly nard-based oil and, and anointing the feet of Jesus. Exactly, and remember, it was uh, the evil Judas who said that money uh, could have been saved, you know, used for the poor, but actually he was dipping into the till, as uh, St. John uh, pointed out uh, to us. You know, it's funny, because, like, yeah, you, you know, we get that question every once in a while, why, you know, all the riches of the church, why don't you sell those and give that money yeah. to the poor? And I always say, well, that's kind of the same opinion Judas had. <laughs> exactly, and Mother Teresa said the same thing when people said to her, in poorest India, why don't you give this to the poor? She said, the poor you have with you always. And she said, it's not mine. This belongs to Jesus. And guess what? Their churches were, were never robbed or vandalized. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Anyway, I, 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 I've made you digress. Go carry on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, Monday, uh, Holy Week, Tuesday or Wednesday would be a chrism mass in the diocese. Um, typically on Wednesday is called Spy Wednesday because that's the day traditionally that uh, Judas uh, decided to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A lot of parishes have um, tenebrae, which is uh, a prayer service that focuses on l the light. And uh, unlike the Easter vigil that starts with uh, one candle and then the whole church is lit up, it's the opposite because we're getting ready for the sacred triduum and the Jesus passion and death. So they start with all like seven or more candles lit and they read some of the readings, sing some hymns, and then they extinguish a candle to that at the very end, there's only one candle left, and then they snuff it out, and then everybody leaves in silence. And then the very next day, Holy Thursday, it's a powerful uh, the only, energy. The, this is what they call the Triduum. It's for the three days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil. And uh, Holy, uh, excuse me, Holy Thursday morning, there's typically no Mass unless it's the Chrism Mass. So your parish doesn't have Mass on Holy Thursday morning. This is why, because the only Mass is the Mass of the Lord's Supper, uh, which uh, in every Mass is, is a reenactment of, of uh, the Last Supper in Calvary and Easter, but in a particular way, because it's the Triduum. Uh, it's a Mass of the Lord's Supper. That's how it's usually described. Good Friday, no Masses are celebrated, uh, just the Liturgy of the Passion. And the tabernacle is completely empty, so... Catholics are not the genuflect on Good Friday or Holy Saturday morning because he's not there. <laughs> the, the, the tomb is, is empty, so to speak. Uh, they move the Blessed Sacrament uh, to a, a secure place in a repository, um, which usually takes place at the end of the Holy Thursday Mass. They strip the altar, and they might have a little place, uh, a repository, where people can make devotions. There's an ancient custom of people visiting seven churches on Holy Thursday mm -hmm. night, if you can find them, if they're yeah. open. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Good Friday, as I said, is the Liturgy of the Passion, no Mass. And then Holy Saturday, no Mass, except for at night, after the sun has set, the Easter Vigil, which is the longest, but is the most beautiful 
a vigil. Some parishes, like when I when I was pastor in Marysville and Duncannon and uh, other places, they would bless food on Holy Saturday morning. Mm. Is an ancient uh, Eastern European custom. And then, uh, and then that leads us into the Easter season. Then we have the big Kahuna, as they say. <laughs> uh, Easter vigil officially starts Easter because uh, it has to be done at sunset. And there's the uh, blessing of the fire. Church is in total darkness. They light the Easter candle, bless the candle. And then from that one Easter candle, everybody in the church gets their little candles lit. And it looks almost like Lourdes when you're coming down the aisle. Mm-hmm. All those candles are lit. The deacon or, or priest incenses the candle and then sings the Exaltet, which is an ancient mm-hmm. hymn about how Jesus is the light, light of the world. Uh, and uh, that is the culmination of the beginning of the Easter Vigil. It's got maybe seven or more uh, scripture readings. It is a mass. And if you have some uh, uh, babies or adult converts, there are going to be baptisms. There's going to be confirmations, first communions, um, litany of the saints. It's just a beautiful. It's long, though. It's going to yeah. be at least two, two and a half, maybe some places three hours, depending on how many people. But it is worth, if you've never been to one, try to get to one. It's beautiful. And then Sunday morning is the usual Easter Mass. Uh, renewal of baptismal promises, uh, you know, do you reject Satan, all his works, all his empty promises, do you believe in God, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to re- uh, spritz him with the holy water to remind you of your um, baptism. Oh, <laughs> I had to laugh at the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's theological language. Yeah. <laughs> Glossolalia. <laughs> there you go, there you go. And then, uh, and then we're off and rolling with the Easter season, and just like Christmas... The season doesn't end on Christmas Day or Easter Sunday. The season begins then. Absolutely. We be, and remember, um, you know, the whole week after Easter is called the octave because that's how the church really gives great emphasis. Christmas and Easter have eight full days of celebration, and then the Easter season, uh, 40 days, unless you're in a diocese where they have this thing where they move it to the next Sunday. 40 days later, uh, we have after Easter, we have the Ascension. Ten days after that, 50 days after Easter, is the Feast of Pentecost. We have uh, Corpus Christi, Trinity Sunday, and then we go back into ordinary time where the priest wears green. But all during the Easter season, he wears white, and uh, the joy, the, the ecstasy of Jesus' resurrection is made manifest. And as glorious as those seasons are, there's nothing ordinary about ordinary time. Nothing ordinary about it whatsoever. <laughs> Believe me, I can tell you. (laughs) It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And welcome back to EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio on this Monday of Holy Week. We're going to empty out the mailbag for the rest of the program. And Charlie writes in, Father, if God is unchanging, did he have a body eternally? And how does the incarnation relate to God being eternal? Very good philosophical, metaphysical question. (laughs) I wish my students would be that erudite. Um, Jesus is eternal in his divinity, in his divine nature. And in the divine nature, there is no body. He's pure spirit. So he's the second person of the Trinity. 
uh, eternally God, the, the Son, and so he has existence with no beginning, no end. His humanity had a creation in time because his human, his human nature was created, okay, created by God, uh, and is hypostatically united to his divine person, but it had a beginning. Uh, there is no end, but there is a beginning, and that was at the moment of the incarnation when Mary uh, said her fiat, her yes, and then she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So his human body had a beginning, all right? Uh, he was, you know, he was uh, an embryo, zygote, whatever they want to describe it, but he was a, his human nature was real, intact. He had a human soul uh, united to his divine soul in one person. And uh, so in his divinity, he always existed. His humanity had a beginning like yours and mine. Um, Jim would like to know, what is the best way to explain the Trinity to younger students? Okay. <laughs> this, well, is a, uh, <laughs> this is a mystery almost as great as the Trinity itself. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, sometimes the shamrock works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I was able to do this in the old days when most families were intact. So you could say the family is a mirror of the divine trinity because in the human family you have um, mom and dad begin as husband and wife and then their love for each other uh, is so intense that it, it, it results in a new life, their child. Um, unfortunately, since a lot of kids come from broken families or all kinds of uh, bizarre situations, some of them can't identify with that. Um, but the best way to describe the trinity is that it's about love. Uh, God the Father... Uh, sees himself in the Son, the Son sees himself in the Father, and because they're perfect, they're God, they love each other so perfectly, that mutual love then, we say, spirates uh, the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit is the mutual love of the Father and the Son. And just like today, you might say, you know, if anyone were, my dad were alive today, uh, someone might say, oh, you're a chip off the old block. You, you look like the old man, you act, you act like the old man. Um, that's a, a glimpse into what uh, is happening with God the Father, God the Son. You can't use the word Father unless there's a child. And so if, the God, if God the Father existed from all eternity as Father, that means there always had to be a Son. And Son also talks about a relationship. So all three persons relate to each other perfectly. That's the best uh, I think we can uh, achieve with our human uh, in, in intellect, which is very limited, but St. Thomas Aquinas says we can at least appreciate that much. Uh, Catherine writes in, given that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was where sin came from, could God have created the Garden of Eden without it? Oh, he could have, absolutely. I mean, you know, God's not constrained by anything, uh, but he, since he is truth itself, he's not going to violate truth because then he would cancel himself out. That's why God would not, you know, say two plus two equals five. It doesn't. It will always equal four. Uh, just likewise, he would never say adultery is okay. Uh, the natural moral law is part of the eternal law, which is based on truth. So what God does in terms of his free will, uh, obviously he didn't have to create human beings. He didn't have to create the angels. Uh, he decided to do that freely and willingly. And so what was in the garden, what was the test given to Adam and Eve, were, so, were totally of his pure volition. And then we have a question from Donald, Father John, and this is going to be the deepest, most philosophical question that we answer today on mm. this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. 
When is the latest that you can arrive at Mass and still be allowed to receive the Eucharist? Okay. <laughs> I got that a lot when I was a pastor for 16 years. Seminaries don't ask that, but the lay people do a lot. Um, it's, there's no magic time. If you're going in good faith and you get stuck in traffic, like a train's there or uh, an accident or... Sometimes it happens you get pulled over by the police because you may be going a little too fast or you, uh, you know, maybe you didn't, you, you turned right on red when you weren't supposed to. If you go in good faith, all right, and you're making a good effort, I would say you could go to communion, at least if you've been there uh, for the, the gospel and the homily. Um, if you purposely and consistently go, come late, and it's because you're being irresponsible, then you need to clean up your act, so to speak, and and do better to get there earlier because optimally we want everybody there for the beginning of mass and then stay. I have more problem with people who leave mass early because getting there late may not be your fault, but leaving early unless you are very ill or you have to take care of someone who's very ill, but you leave because you got a party to go to, or, you know, you got other stuff. Uh, that's not good. I had a sign in the back of my church. Remember Judas was the first one to leave mass early. <laughs> Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, Linda would like to know, what is the intersection between the sovereignty of God and our prayer requests? Why pray if God is going to do what's best for us either way? Because he said so. <laughs> he said, ask you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened. Uh, so he's asking us to ask, even though he already knows ahead of time, what we're going to ask for. Uh, it's not that he needs to know, and so us telling him informs him. It's an act of faith on our part. It's an act of trust that we're, we're trusting that God will hear us and that he will answer us. But remember, he says, ask you shall receive. He doesn't say what you're going to receive. He doesn't say ask and you'll receive it. You're going to receive exactly what you ask for. Because just like he said in the gospel, you know, uh, what father gives his son a snake when he asks for an egg? What if the kid's a little weirdo and he wants the scorpion, right? Uh, a good dad's not going to give it to him. And so even when we ask for something that may be okay, but it's not the right time, or we're asking for something that's not good, God's going to answer our prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is going to take a little bit longer than we expect. But in terms of his sovereignty, he acts out of pure free will. Um, but he says out of his free will, I want you to ask me. Just like your mom and dad would say, just don't do this, ask me uh, before, even though they probably under, uh, speculated what you're going to do. Uh, Nathaniel has a question. He said, I explained to my Christian friends that Catholics pray to the saints to present our intentions to Christ. We're not worshiping. They say, why not go directly to Christ? And I reason, if the saint is that much closer to Jesus and you ask people on earth to pray for you, why not ask them as well? Is this a correct way to explain it to others? I think so. And I always start first with that second part of, of what he said is, do you not ask a living person for their prayers? Uh, if I was going to have uh, an appendectomy tomorrow, I would say, please pray for me. And if you said in return, no, I'm not going to pray for you. You go to Jesus yourself. You don't need me. You'd be theologically correct. But you also be rude. <laughs> Part of Christianity is that we show compassion. So St. Paul prayed for the Corinthians. The Corinthians prayed for him. Uh, you and I pray for each other. So if the living can act as intercessors to the one mediator, Jesus Christ, then why not the saints and the angels in heaven? 
they're not disconnected from us. That's what we call the, the communion of saints. And since they're in the presence of God, that's what heaven is, uh, they're not isolated from reality. So God allows them to to know what's going on with us. And so again, there's that beautiful um, inner relationship. Uh, Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and the, and the poor man. When the poor man, uh, Lazarus, dies, uh, the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus. Well, they're both dead, and yet he's talking to them. So all these people who say, oh, you're, you're talking to the dead. Well, we're not allowed to worship the dead. We're not allowed to summon the dead, but we certainly can communicate with them in the proper way, and, and that's, how, that's called prayer. If they're in heaven, they're more alive than we are, huh? Got that right. And they and guess what? They don't have any worries. They're not working on their income tax like I am today. <laughs> Didn't we get an extension on that? Till the 18th, yes. Okay. Um, Peter writes in, A friend and I are having a debate on the nature of purgatory and reconciliation. I understand that rather than going straight to heaven... There are still consequences for our sins, and that is why we are sent to purgatory. My friend states that if we died directly after going to confession, our sins would be completely wiped away and we'd go straight to heaven. Which of us is correct? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. <laughs> if you made a good confession and your sins were all absolved, you'd avoid hell. <laughs> um, because uh, if you have a mortal sin, you cannot get to heaven and you are going to suffer the, the eternal pains of hell if you have a mortal, unforgiven mortal sin on your soul. If you get that absolved in the sacrament of penance, uh, hell is avoided, but to get to heaven, one must be free of all attachment to sin. And that's why, you know, the plenary indulgence that's uh, available, it's not, uh, you know, infallible because it depends on a person's spiritual state, but there's a plenary indulgence if you receive the sacrament of the sick and what we call the last rites, there's the apostolic blessing. But, you know, when I was in Catholic grade school, the sisters always had this scenario like, well, boys and girls, you must be in a state of grace because when you're crossing the street and a truck runs you over, I was scared to death of trucks for at least, you know, 12 years as a kid. I thought that someone's out to run me over. But even in that case, you accidentally die in, a, in an automobile accident or you get uh, a blood clot, throws it to your brain or whatever, uh, you die whatever state you're in is going to be for the rest of eternity. So if you're in the state of grace, you're okay. But purgatory, all right, is the, is the remission of temporal punishment due to sin, which basically is your attachment, those fond memories you had of those things you knew were wrong, you did anyway, you're sorry for them, but you still have a little inkling for them. And that's why purgatory sort of um, uh, expurgates that. And I think really his friend is is more describing the scenario that might be true if the, if something befell you immediately following your baptism, huh? Yes, because baptism, all your sins are washed. That's why the Easter Vigil is beautiful, because if, let, let's say, we'll give that bizarre example, you, you're in the Easter Vigil, you're a convert, you get baptized, because you've never been baptized before, and right after the Mass, you go across the street and you do get run over. Um, you didn't have a chance to sin, all right? Uh, then you would you would literally go right there because baptism washes away all sin uh, since the time of, of your birth. But um, any sins committed after baptism, you must go to confession. And really, that was in an ancient practice back in the day before the the, the further development that we've seen today of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, a lot of people would postpone baptism until later in life for that very reason. 
Yes, well, Emperor Constantine allegedly waited till his deathbed. And when you're the emperor, you have that luxury because everybody's on 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 page to see how you're doing that day. <laughs> and uh, but it's it's rolling the dice, which is not a good thing. And you're denying yourself all those other sacramental graces because without baptism, you can't receive Holy Communion. Without baptism, you can't get confirmation. Uh, without baptism, you get the sacrament of matrimony. So, get baptized, receive the fullness of God's grace and live a holy, sanctified life the whole time and not just at the end. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line, Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Be sure to visit EWTN's site dedicated to Mother Angelica, where you can celebrate her remarkable life. It's filled with photos, milestones, heartfelt stories, and her wit and words, of course, that have inspired the hearts of all ages throughout the years. Um, Visit EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica today. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Scott writes in, I would like to know if St. John, the Gospel writer, St. John, the Beloved One, and St. John of Patmos are all the same cat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um, when I was in high school seminary, one of my friends thought they were all different. He actually thought Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, <laughs> Our Lady of the Max Metal. We're all different ladies. Wow, that, that the, could get complicated. <laughs> the priest said, no, Jesus had one mother. That was it. Um, John the Evangelist has been called different things based on the, the uh, perspective or emphasis you want to place. So he's the beloved. He's the um, the evangelist. Okay, he's an uh, apostle. Um, he was in Patmos. He was the one at the cross who um, you know, took care of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He is not John the Baptist, all right? Mm-hmm. Some people confuse those two because they were lived around the same time. Um, when I was in grade school, Sister Gertrude said, I should take John the Baptist as my patron saint. And I said, why? She said, well, you're, both of you, you have a mother named Elizabeth. I said, yeah, but he lost his head. <laughs> I, I want to be the beloved disciple. So I took John the Evangelist. But they are the same person. Now, there is a, a church in New York City called St. John the Divine. Um, it's an Anglican church. It's gorgeous. It's real Gothic architecture. That title, St. John the Divine, was not trying to say that John was a god. Uh, it was uh, a title that was used in the ancient church because he has the loftiest theology. He's the, the fourth gospel, uh, unlike the other three, which are called synoptics, because they're very similar. Uh, he begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. So because of that high theology, he was given that title, St. John the Divine. But uh, the Catholics, uh, we don't use it as much as the uh, Anglican Church does. And that's actually been a, a phenomenon that you see with some more contemporary saints. St. Teresa comes to mind. Exactly. Um, this idea of you know being being very intimate with God, having uh, you know the, almost reaching that very rare state uh, of the unitive, Uh, which is full contemplation. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today, please. Um, Frank would like to know, did the Blessed Mother know she was free from original sin? (laughs) 
Um, I don't think she was because they didn't give her a copy of the catechism when the angel Gabriel came. Uh, in all seriousness, I mean, we don't know what her comprehension was. Obviously, you know, she asked, how can this be since I know not man? And the angel, the archangel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will um, overshadow you and you will conceive by his power. I don't know what she understood that to be, but she certainly knew that she was not going to conceive through the normal means uh, with um, uh, a husband. So uh, the the virgin birth is something that she probably understood at least that much that she would give birth without any other biological assistance. It just would be an act of God. But in terms of her being full, free of original sin, that's what the title means, Hail Full of Grace, Gratia Plena, or in the Greek, Ke Karitomene, what does she understand that to be? We don't know. She didn't leave a note. She didn't leave a diary or a journal. Uh, she doesn't say anything. Um, she certainly has an intellect, but God could have infused into her mind because that's certainly uh, what he did with Adam and Eve. So she may have understood with full clarity without destroying the fact that you know she had a human intellect, or she could have just understood it at the best level she could. Uh, Karen would like to know, what is the Catholic perspective on physician-assisted suicide? Totally, absolutely forbidden. Um, it's considered an accessory to, to murder. It's what we call material and formal cooperation in evil. Um, doctors are not, nor nurses or anyone for that matter, is to assist in uh, a suicide. Even though uh, it's very sad and it's painful to watch a loved one suffer. I had a brother who had muscular dystrophy. He suffered tremendously. My dad, my mom, both uh, had horrible illnesses and uh, lasted a long time in, in their suffering. But at no point can we you know, do evil uh, to remove another evil. So the evil of suffering cannot be alleviated by the evil of murder. What you can do and what we must do we can uh, alleviate as much pain as possible without that being the cause of death. So you can give a person painkillers, but you, that cannot be the cause of their death. You can remove as much pain without it causing death, because sometimes like morphine and other painkillers slow down the, the, um, the, the breathing and the heart rate, and then it causes death. Um, Pope John Paul the Great, who we know suffered a lot in his later years with Parkinson's, he reiterated what the church has consistently taught Everyone who's able to uh, assimilate into their body, they need nutrition, food, they need hydration, water, and they need uh, normal care, which is, you know, they have a blanket if they're cold, they need to be washed if they, um, you know, to be bathed every day, or if they mess themselves. Um, those three are what we call ordinary means to help. Extraordinary means would be things that are experimental, extremely expensive, um, they're not necessarily foolproof. So like uh, dialysis, um, certain cancer treatments. Yes, any type of operations that you know you might not survive, you can willingly say, okay, I, 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 I'm going to not go that route. Those are considered extraordinary means. But you can't say, oh, don't, don't put the feeding tube in me because although it sounds kind of you know, nasty, it really isn't. And it's considered normal today. Today, uh, a blood transfusion is, is normal. Uh, back in the old days... Um, even antibiotics were considered experimental, so those were considered uh, uh, extraordinary, and you could refuse it back then. Today, you know, uh, unless you're running out of veins, which happened with my dad, they couldn't find him anymore. Uh, if your health, if you've got a family, you got uh, responsibilities, obligations, 
you must employ every ordinary means to sustain your life. But if you're getting towards the end and the dying process has already begun, um, you're dying of cancer or just old age and the organs are starting to shut down one by one, again, you cannot starve yourself to death, nor can someone starve you to death, nor can they medicate you to death, but they can make you comfortable. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Uh Greg's question is, in the past, the Church has supported the use of the death penalty, but has changed its stance in recent times. Is this an example of the Church's elastic or subjective morality? No. <laughs> because even uh, in the past when the Church, uh, you know, and the Church has always taught that the capital punishment, the death penalty, was never an absolute right of the state. It was a theoretical right, and in ancient times especially, there was no alternative. You did not have an elaborate uh, penal system, uh, rehabilitation, or whatever you want to call it back then, and there was a threat if you know someone was extremely dangerous, uh, if you did not remove them from society completely, then other people uh, might be harmed. Uh, Pope John Paul himself, who auth- who uh, promulgated the, the the Catechism of the Catholic Church in ninety two, tweaked it himself. Later, it was uh, retweaked by Pope Benedict, and then again by Pope Francis. It says that there does not seem to us at this time that recourse to the death penalty is necessary. That was always the proviso that the death penalty could be used only when it was necessary, and all other means were exhausted. In ancient times, there weren't other any other, you know, uh, you didn't have an elaborate court system, you didn't have an elaborate prison system. Um, so today, because we have ways of making sure that people are kept out of society without uh, killing them. So the theory is still there that the state has that right, but she doesn't have the absolute right to exercise it anytime uh, she wants. And popes have just reiterated that and said that now in our context, it's no longer needed. Not that it's in, it's not, no, it's never said it's intrinsically evil. Uh, What Pope Francis said was uh, it was uh, inadmissible, which is a different concept. And uh, here's a good Easter question. Roger says, how do you answer someone who says it doesn't matter what church you belong to as long as you believe in Jesus? Well, if you truly believe in Jesus and you believe everything he said, because you truly believe him and Believing what he said means that you believe when he says in Matthew, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I, Jesus, will build my church. So if you believe that, what is the church Jesus founded on the rock of Peter? Well, who is Peter? Peter has successors. They're called the popes. The bishop of Rome has consistently, for over 2,000 years, been called the successor of St. Peter. And St. Peter himself uh, died in Rome. And then all the subsequent Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, all them, all the way down to Pope Francis, they are the, the heads of the church as given to us by uh, Jesus himself. So if you believe Jesus, you've got to believe 100% of what he said and did. You believe he gave us the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, that you believe he gave us the church, that he gave us his mother and, and uh, the sacramental graces. So... Yeah, it's believe in Jesus in his totality and not just pick and choose. I thought you were going to run through the whole roster there for a minute. <laughs> of all 266? <laughs> I thought you had it committed to memory. 
Um, <laughs> it's in, on the test. There you go. Indira would like to know, did God create the Holy Spirit, or has he always been with God? No. <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit is God. It's one God with three persons. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, even though we, when I was explaining a little bit about the Trinity a few moments ago, we speak chronologically only because our our minds can only comprehend at that level. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit always existed simultaneously for all eternity. All three share the one and same divine nature, one divine intellect, one divine will. So what one knows, all three knows. What one wills, all three will. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. No phone calls today, but we are emptying out the mailbag. Uh, David asks, when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, I'm curious how God and Jesus can have separate wills. Can you explain? Well, that's a very good question. And uh, again, we point out that Jesus, the person, there's one person, he's divine, second person of the Trinity, but Jesus has two natures, a human nature and divine nature. In his human nature, he has a human intellect and a human will. In his divine nature, he has divine intellect, divine will. So there are two wills there, all right? So his human will has to submit to the divine will. And he's showing us that that's what you and I need to do, because we have a human will, just as he had a human will. But he had the added advantage of having a divine will, which that, that's how he is God. But also in his created human nature, not my will, yours be done. He's surrendering his human will to the will of God the Father, the divine will. All right, Father, uh, the next question is, uh, in Exodus, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, was God taking away his free will or giving Pharaoh what he desired? Yeah, God's never going to restrict or affect our, our, our free will, because, again, that would contradict himself, because he gave us that gift, and the purpose of a free will is to freely choose, and that's where it becomes a moral act. In hardening his heart, he was just, as you said, affirming what Pharaoh wanted to do all along, and so just made him more resolute, but in no way did he coerce Pharaoh. Pharaoh freely, willingly decided to do what he did, and he was fully responsible. All right, thank you for that question, Nathan. Uh, our next question comes from Betty. Uh, can children of unwed parents be baptized? Yes. The only provision is that there must be a reasonable hope that the child be raised in the Catholic faith. If there's any question, if there's no grandmother or grandfather, if the godparents are going to, not going to be uh, in any way, shape, or form participatory, which sort of negates the very purpose of having them there, they're to uh, help assist uh, in the raising of the child in the, in the faith. Um, so if there's ever any doubt or um, cer un uncertainty, then the baptism can be postponed until that can be achieved. But uh, baptism is never denied, uh, regardless of the uh, parent's status. And furthermore, priests are forbidden to tell the couple who are not married, you must get married first before I'll baptize your child, because then that would invalidate th their marriage. You're putting a condition upon them. You could suggest and encourage them, but it, you cannot uh, hold their kids' baptism as hostage. All right. Don writes in and wants to know, why does it say in the Bible that we should lay hands and heal people? Uh, why don't we do that in the Catholic Church? Well, we do have people who do uh, impose hands and, and pray. Um, 
I've seen this done in many places. It's just there's no formal liturgical rite. It's something done at an individual level. Uh, certain prayer groups, uh, Catholic Charismatics, other people have, have done this. It's just that it's not a formal sacramental, certainly not a sacrament, but there's nothing that says you cannot uh, place hands on someone and pray for healing. But you have to make it clear that there, it is not a sacramental like the priest or deacon can give when they give a blessing. Uh, Elizabeth writes in, well, we're going we're gonna to get back to Elizabeth because she, <laughs> well, she cites a scripture passage, and I don't know if I need to read that question more carefully. Okay, Henry, I'm in glad the meantime, you, I'm, glad, I'm glad you thought of that. Yeah, uh, Henry says, I'm in RCIA, and my Good. mom is asking about papal authority. How do I explain papal authority to my mom? Okay, papal authority is different from papal infallibility. Papal infallibility is that the is that the Holy Spirit prevents the Pope from saying something that is false that would be binding in conscience and faith and morals upon all the faithful. It does not affect his own personal opinions or his prudential judgments. Papal authority is the jurisdiction of the Pope. So his ability to appoint bishops and to depose bishops, to create dioceses or suppress dioceses, uh, to add new holy days of obligation or to write a code of canon law or to issue a catechism. This is all part of jurisdiction. Uh, it is um, um, a, a part of the um, the kingly aspect of, of papal life because the Pope, as the Vicar of Christ, has the same th- uh, trifold munera, three offices, Christ the prophet, priest, prophet, and king. So in his um, kingly or shepherd uh, role, he has that full authority. And again, it goes back to Matthew's uh, gospel when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That is not just in terms of teaching, but also in terms of, of jurisdiction. That's why um, on Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, Peter and John ran to the tomb. John got there first because he was younger and more spry. Peter took a little bit longer, but John waited for Peter to arrive and then go into the tomb. Likewise, when St. Paul had his uh, conversion on the, on the road to Damascus, he at some point said, I must go see Peter. Um, and Peter's the one that received that, that dream uh, before the Council of Jerusalem. So Peter's authority is not just teaching, but also jurisdictional, and that applies to the Pope then. Uh, Alex writes in, I thought hell was part of Catholic doctrine, but now I've heard the Pope doesn't believe in hell. But I also heard that maybe he didn't say that. What's the truth? The Pope Francis did not say there was no hell because he certainly said there's a devil. So where does the devil live if, there's, if he's not in hell? Um, what he probably said, uh, and I, I remember reading it uh, quickly uh, not too long ago, hell is not the way people envision it. It's not in the center of the earth and you've got little demons poking you with pitchforks. Hell is an eternity. It's a spiritual state, but also when the bodies are raised from the dead, the glorified ones go to heaven, the, the reprobate go, go to hell. So it is a place and a state, and it is real. Uh, Leonard would like to know, do angels have genders? If not, no. <laughs> wh- if not why do they have gendered names? They really don't. <laughs> Raphael Michael Gabriel... Uh, you know, uh, yeah, we, we ascribe to them, you know, masculinity, but 
technically speaking, an angel has no gender. It's pure spirit. It has no body parts, okay? So there's no way for it to be confused, and there's no way for it to change its gender. Uh, but we, we, names typically have masculinity or femininity. English is one of the few languages that doesn't have gender in terms of nouns. Uh, all the other languages basically do. So the fact that the masculine form uh, is used, uh, that's why we ascribe to them um, manly characteristics. But technically speaking, Michael, Rafe, and Gabriel are not men. They're angels. Uh, be sure to check out Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern. Great topic, all about relationships. That's Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow, noon Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Marion writes in, I know that Jesus is the most holy of anyone who ever existed. How closely can we get to Jesus' holiness here on earth? Well, that, that's, that's a very good question. And that's for the average bear, not for you, <laughs> Father John. Yeah, I'm, I'm in more need of prayers. <laughs> um, because we're adopted children of God by baptism, and therefore Jesus is our brother, he says you can pray our Father who art in heaven, um, we can approach closer than we would ever deserve out of natural um, justice. God offers us intimate unity with him. That's what we call the unitive life. Um, it's achievable once you're in heaven. It's um, something that we don't deserve, but God offers us. So we can approach uh, the holiness of Jesus very closely, but not in totality, because then we would be God. Um, but because of the way God's grace works, you know, the more you receive and cooperate, the more you you can receive in the future. So it's almost like a balloon. You know, the more air you put in, the bigger it gets. So you can achieve great holiness. Obviously, we, we, we can't get the same level as the Blessed Mother because she had very special grace. But we can get very close. Um, all the all the saints, other than than the Blessed Mother, like Saint John. Uh, the evangelist or John the Baptist or St. Joseph, uh, they got pretty close. But in terms of metaphysically, we're still light years apart from divinity because God is perfect, total holiness. In keeping with the holiness theme, Stephen wants to know, for a person that struggles with scrupulosity, how does one strive for holiness? Okay, you need to be completely docile and obedient to your spiritual director or your confessor. That's the only way you're going to beat scrupulosity. And, and I, when I'm dealing with a scrupulous person, I impose uh, this idea. I say, look, I command you out of pain of mortal sin, you must listen to me. And therefore, uh, instead of coming to confession every day or twice a day or three times a day, I command you only uh, once or twice a week at the most. Um, and if there's anything you know responsible, I will take the responsibility. And then I also command them under obedience to to lighten up as best they can, to trust in God's mercy, uh, some, because they are uh, uh, sort of fixated on the possibility that there might be a, a hiding sin. You know, I mentioned income taxes recently. <laughs> um, going to confession is not being audited by God like the IRS. Uh, the IRS, if you make a mistake, you have to amend your return, and they will come after you. But in God's mercy... Whatever you legitimately um, and was not deliberate, unknowingly forgot, is absolved. So if you remember something after you leave the box, it's forgiven. You must believe that. And I command you to believe that mm -hmm. as your confessor. So you use that authority 
uh, with someone who's battling scrupulosity. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Aaron writes in, Why do Catholics take some aspects of Scripture literally and other aspects figuratively? Because we have to. (laughs) Um, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Does he ever say, I didn't mean that? Did he ever say this is figurative? Did he say this is a metaphor? This is analogous? No, he never says that. So how do we know when he's speaking figuratively, and how do we know when he's speaking literally? I'm the vine, you are the branches. No, he believes that we're plants, but he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Again, you know, uh, he never says, you must take this literally, but he gives the authority to the church to authoritatively interpret sacred scripture. So the church tells us, in this case, we must take it literally. In this other case, we must take it uh, figuratively. And that's because Jesus gave that authority. He who hears you, hears me. He gave that power to Peter and the apostles. And again, we go back to Matthew uh, Matthew, when he says, Thou art Peter, upon the rock I'll build my church. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. So that authority to whatever applies also to the church's authority to dis- delineate when something's be taken literally. Otherwise, it's up to everyone's own personal discretion. And you could have a Christian going around saying, Okay, I'm going to pluck out my eye because I looked at something on the internet I should have looked at. Without church authority, you, you, you could come up to that conclusion. And that's really the beauty of having the cover of, of what Holy Mother Church has said down through the centuries, huh? Exactly, because if we were left to our own devices, you would have all kinds of various interpretations, and nobody would be true because you'd have conflicting uh, opinions, and that ain't going to work. And give me a 30-second answer. B says, NFP intends to not get pregnant, so why is it okay, but contraception isn't? NFP is using the natural processes that God has designed, and it is open to the possibility because, you know, NFP is not uh, 100,000% foolproof, and you're using it to plan your family as opposed to explicitly prevent conception, because that's what contraception is. Would you leave us with a blessing, Father? May the blessed Almighty God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. And have a holy week. Amen. Thank you, Father John. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, Michael McCall, and myself, Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Until then, God bless.